granddaughter of survivors and that was the first thing I thought about my grandma and grandpa which were amazing people and went through the horrible terrifying things in the holocaust and were the most resilient people I've ever known and the most happy optimistic so they're with me from that day every single second that I work and cope and teach my kids how to cope Welcome to Raw, a podcast where we confront the complexities of war from the inside out. I'm Anouk, a journalist, author, yoga teacher, and meditation practitioner. Raw, or war spelled backwards, symbolizes how many of us feel in the face of the Israel-Gaza conflict, exposed, vulnerable, and seeking understanding. Here, we don't just discuss the external battles, but dive deep into our internal struggles, examining how this violence has shaken our very core. Join me in conversations with philosophers, psychologists, and spiritual leaders as we explore how to navigate these painful times with wisdom and resilience, finding guidance for our own paths through this raw, unfiltered world. guest today is Professor Anat Bernstein-Klomek, who is the Dean of the School of Psychology at Reichman University in Israel and a clinical psychologist. She completed her postdoctoral fellowship and was an assistant professor in the Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at Columbia University in New York. In the last few years, Anat's been the academic advisor of the Israel Ministries of Health and Education as part of the National Suicide Prevention Program. She's also the Israeli representative of the International Association for Suicide Prevention. Anat lives in Israel with her husband and two children. Anat, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. It's such a pleasure. On my way here, I was driving I was on the left lane of the highway, which is supposed to be the fast lane. And I had this car behind me, like really tailing me very, very closely. And, you know, in that moment, you're, you're on the highway and things are going fast and you, you have to be careful. And someone's coming very close. So much is happening internally that in the moment you just can't process In the moment, you're just like, oh, my God, what's this guy doing? And, um, of course, you know, subconsciously, I assumed it's a guy um, mm. who's doing that, even though there, was, there wasn't that much space in front of me. I couldn't go that much faster. And uh, anyway, I had to exit, so I, 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 I exited to the right. But I still wanted to see, like, who, who is this person? You know, who's this person who's, who's been quite aggressive? And I looked left, and it was this guy, indeed, uh, probably like I just assumed from like the glance, you know, the glance, like 40s, 50s. And he was looking at me also, like even though we had separated, he was look. He, he also wanted to see who was this atrocious driver. He probably subconsciously assumed I'm a woman, like all this was happening internally. And 
I come from a place where I'm very fortunate to have 20 years of being in psychotherapy and doing meditation. And so I was able to kind of calm my nervous system and think, you know what, I have no idea what this guy is going through. You know, maybe, maybe the war, the conflict at home, his childhood, you know, all that is impacting how he is behaving in the moment. And I have to let go. The reason I'm saying all this is that, you know, I invited you here to talk about October 7th and the war um, that followed and how it has affected our internal spaces. And what I want to say is that on October 7th, um, when, when it started becoming clear what had happened, you know, and I was in the shelter with my three kids and reading the news, um, I no longer had any of that capacity to witness how things were being processed inside my body and inside my psyche. I was just completely swept up in my own terror and anxiety. Um, and of course, in the following days, my kids being home and not being um, in school um, and just looking at social media. I mean, I was, I, I, I have a history of anxiety, but, but I had never felt that way. I'm curious for you, you have spent your entire adult life studying psychology, being a psychologist, helping people. During October 7th and its aftermath, for you personally, for Anat, you know, the mom of two, you have a son in the army, um, you have a daughter, for Anat, the Israeli, the Jewish person, the woman, and the psychologist, how did those events impact your internal life on that day and in the immediate aftermath? Wow. <laughs> so I'll, I'll speak as a not before as a not as, as a psychologist. Um, the worst I felt in the country since I remember myself. I'm 51 this year. I've never felt that way. Um, anxious about my son who just went up to his base a day before um, my daughter wasn't at home. My husband was running, jogging outside. And I literally couldn't believe what I was hearing, understanding that something very, very big is happening. Um, so on a personal level, it was, as you're describing, something very, very strong emotionally um, that I've never felt before. And on a personal note, I lost my mom in a traumatic way six months before the war started. So it was like a personal trauma. She literally choked to death with oh. us in a family dinner. Oh. So it was very traumatic, kind of DSM trauma. I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah, thanks. So it was like, no, I mean, personal trauma. This now, my kids. Um, so I have to say it took me a few hours. Um, and at... And now I'll move to the professional level. At three o'clock, we've opened a group for what we called the resilience war room or situation room, um, where we put together our faculty, 45 psychologists, by the way, not just clinicians, social psychologists, organizational psychologists, uh, sports psychology, and clinicians, and opened up 
uh, for student volunteers to come and be what we call resilience trustees or champions. Um, so I think the doing part that day, and now I'm combining the personal and the professional, saved me. Because very quickly, I had to understand what's going on. I had to be back of being the dean of the school psychology, a clinical psychologist, a supervisor, um, you know, a leader of students that could think of our 1,600 students that we need to take care of. That literally saved me. Mm, that, that makes so much sense. And I think the, the helping and the doing for most of Israeli society was really, um, I mean, you'll tell me, but psychologically, you know, a lifeline in the weeks that followed. Um, I have to say, uh, it took me a few days. It took me a few days of, of really feeling, um, feeling like I was in the Holocaust. Like, that's how I felt. I felt terrified for my existential survival and mainly that of my children. Um, And it took me much more than a few hours, um, maybe because I didn't, um, I didn't have what to do. Um, and because I have very young children, including a nine month old. And so after a few days, it became clear that I would not be able to, um, uh, get myself out of, uh, out of this mental, uh, terror, Uh, by being in Israel. So we actually left the country. We left the country for three weeks, which wasn't an easy decision. It's hard to feel like you're leaving a sinking ship. Um, but all those things, all those decisions and all those um, uh, uh, internal dialogues that happened in the days after, um, can they be traumatic long-term? I know there is a big surge in mental health issues in Israel, Is it primarily related to those first days when people were perhaps uh, terrified for their own survival or that of their family, even if they weren't directly affected by the massacre? Yeah, so, so it's, it's much more complicated than just the trauma. I think, you know, the trauma is an, on a national level this time, and we were all traumatized, obviously in differences, you know, in quality and quantity between the Tel Aviv area versus down south, etc. But there is definitely what we call secondary trauma, where you can be traumatized by watching, you, you mentioned social media, and feeling the same, just thinking about the Holocaust. Again, on a personal note, I'm a granddaughter of survivors, and that was the first thing I thought about my grandma and grandpa, which were amazing people and went through the horrible, terrifying things in the Holocaust and were the most resilient people I've ever known and the most happy, optimistic. So they're with me from that day every single second that I work and cope and teach my kids how to cope. Um, but back to the trauma. So it's an ongoing trauma. It has not stopped. Usually in our psychological world, we talk about, you know, somebody going through a trauma, which has a beginning and an end. And we're still in a trauma as a nation and people on a personal level with a lot of secondary trauma. And there's a difference between the initial acute response and the later responses. So usually in the first days, we talk about what we call acute stress response, which then the traumatic responses and symptoms are very, very natural and you know normative. 
When you continue 30 days later, officially by our DSM, we move to what we call acute stress disorder, which is still something that can go, but it's all about the initial traumatic, surprising, and terrifying events. And then when that doesn't pass, I mean, after that month, we have the first few days of response, and then we have the first month of disorder, and then we start talking about post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, we're all traumatized, we're all post-traumatic, but not all of us, and actually most of us, will not have the post-traumatic stress disorder. What is going to differentiate between the people who have post-trauma, like most Israelis, and you know, I will say Gazans and Palestinians, and many people around the world who are watching the news, many of us are post-traumatized and in the trauma because it keeps happening. Every day we see things happening. What's going to differentiate between those people and the people who have post-traumatic stress disorder? Is that a combination of the genetics, um, the childhood uh, histories of the people um, who are who are who have post-traumatic stress disorder, and the resilience? Because that's a word that I've I've been hearing so much. You called the you know the the operation, the initiative that that you launched um, post October seventh. You called it the the resilience uh, program. What constitutes resilience? Is that what makes the difference between post-trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder? And can you tell us a little bit more about resilience? How easy is it to attain some level of resilient skills? Okay, so so let's start with the complexity of PTSD, of post-traumatic stress disorder. It's, it's not from one cause, right? So if I have two people, there are many, many factors that will differentiate between who will develop PTSD and who wouldn't. Are. But resilience is a big one, and, and I'm happy that you're kind of focusing on that because I am extremely passionate about how we increase resilience we all are resilient to one way or the other, uh, both individually, socially, nationally, and internationally. But obviously, there's a lot of differences between people and subcultures and nationalities and the resiliency. And um, the way I, you know, there are more than 100 definitions for what psychological resilience is. And I think that's why the, pop- the population and the public is so confused. And there are thousands of interventions to increase resiliency. And, and the word has become problematic because it's overused and there are different vocabularies for it and different ways people conceptualize it. But at the end of the day, as a clinical psychologist, I would like all of us to talk about resiliency as skills, as what can I do to cope, both on you know regular routine days, acute stresses, all the way to this extreme horrible war. Um, the thing I love about it is that you can always start learning. You can always uh, upgrade your level of resiliency. We work with elderly We work with people who are suicidal and did not have resiliency at all. And if you understand that it's it's actually not as complicated as we made it as researchers and as clinicians, and I feel bad as as my profession that we've had so many languages and conceptualization, et cetera, but at the end of the day, as a clinician, it's not that complicated. I mean, currently... We have a uh, framework that we look at the resiliency skills as 
five categories of skills or muscles. And just like physical muscles that we go to the gym, we see life as a gym for the psychological resiliency. So it's the emotional muscles, the cognitive muscles, the behavioral muscles, the body-mind muscles, and the interpersonal muscles. And if you think about all the skills that you want to raise your kids and that you want the public to practice, especially in these days, you can categorize them into all of these. There are a lot of things that you also mentioned, like spirituality and meaning, which are kind of across the skills that are extremely important. Why are we fighting now? Why is this war so important for us to define ourselves again, to come back to being a loving national nationality that can live together although we disagree on so many things and etc and that's on the national level but it, on the personal level as well so it's it's kind of a gym although it's a, mm-hmm. it's a problematic equivalent in times of war to it's it's never too late and it's okay to do it now as I've mentioned before, I've, I've been in psychotherapy for 20 years. And when I started, I was 18, so now you can make the math as <laughs> to how old I am. Uh, when I started, I didn't know there was anything else. Um, I didn't know there were any muscles that I could practice on my own. And I have to say that while I love my therapist and I deeply respect her work, um, I have often in the last years as I've discovered some other skills, I've told her, you know, if you had, if you had only told me to take a deep breath, I was so disconnected from my body for so many years that I feel like, you know, in psychotherapy, it's so easy to just talk and talk and talk and talk and tell stories and retell them and stay kind of from the neck up. You just stay in your head and you have no conscious idea of what's happening in the body. And no one had ever told me to breathe. And when I started yoga, you know, it doesn't matter if you like or you don't like yoga, but you're forced to breathe. And you're forced to start to have some kind of connection with your body, to have some kind of awareness of what's happening in the body. So that was one. Um, As I started uh, becoming interested in meditation also, obviously, um, the mindfulness is just an awareness of what's happening inside of you. So it's an awareness of your emotions, of your sensations, of your judgments, of your self-talk. And that was also like a muscle that I practice, which helped me tremendously. And then there were like simple things, you know, all the the simple things like eating well. Um, I think I, I, I ate junk most of my uh, childhood and adult life. Um, and I started eating better, um, and small things like that. You don't have to be, you know, a a perfectly balanced eater. If you start doing something small that is nourishing, um, that can be, that can, that, I think that can add to resilience and, um, you know, just kind of, I, I massage myself. People find that weird, but I just kind of, you know, pat my shoulder and those are things that, I mean, you'll tell me if those add up to resilience, but I think they're very simple things that, you know, you don't have to be an expert in psychology or having, or even being with a psychologist to start saying these are small things that you can do in order to build up your little, you know, your little sack 
of goodness so that when there is a lot of bad and there is so much bad, you create that little sack for yourself that you can, you know, you can turn to, you can open it up and pick out some tools that work for you. Does that make sense? Of course. And I don't know, I, I was smiling because I was thinking about there was this young man, I don't know if you saw that video that was running around that um, during the time of the Nova Festival when they were hiding, there is a video of him or uh, him taking him a video of himself uh, breathing and meditating, which I was so happy for him to have that because the, that's the last thing that you have before, unfortunately, he was killed, murdered. Um, but I was happy for him that at least he could be, you know, in mindful situation and just stick to his breath. Um, yes, I totally agree with you. And that's where I am for many, many years. Um, I was working on the clinical side, a lot of pathology in the room, mostly traditional, not traditional psychodynamic, but in the room, neck above, talking, talking, talking. And I'm a big believer in that. But in the last, I want to say 10 years, I am passionate about taking what we know from the room outside to the real world and teaching people not just to come to psychotherapy one-on-one, -on -one, which is expensive and long, and it's amazing, but as you said, you're fortunate to have it and not everybody can get there for different reasons, not just um, financial. And what you're talking about are those exact resilience muscles that you are focusing mainly on what we call body-mind um, of breathing and muscle relaxation and self-massage and eating and sleeping, etc. And I love those. And I think those should be practices in every person's life and in any psychotherapy. So today, it's not by chance that we have a category of body within the resilient skills. And I work with the body in every single one of my patients. So I don't just sit in the room and talk. We walk and we breathe together and we can do some yoga or Pilates, although I'm not an instructor. The other thing you mentioned, which I also love, is being mindful of our thoughts and not believing our thoughts. You know, we have automatic thoughts all the time. We have basic assumptions all the time. We have core beliefs all the time. And especially at wartime, they're very, very negative, depressing. They make us feel helpless and hopeless. And we have to remember that these are just thoughts. Just let it be. It will go away. I mean, the, these emotions and cognitions are literally waves. They come and go. And if you don't panic about them, it's okay to stay there for a while. When you see the social media space primarily and the news, the online spaces, we can safely say are extraordinarily polarized, toxic with, uh, I'm not going to say both sides because that's, you know, that's really oversimplifying it, but there is so much hatred, so much uh, refusal to see the other as human with complex and nuanced histories and thoughts and and lives what do you feel about the online space these days how would you qualify it and what would you tell people who are spending time on these spaces and this goes back to our category of behavioral aspects or skills or muscles don't be there too much. Literally saying our research shows that if you're exposed too much, that is 
tra- trauma in and of itself, as I said, secondary trauma. So really have a diet on how much you're on the screen. It's okay to be on the screen, to be updated. You want to be knowledgeable of what's going on, but keep out as much as possible. So I had a lot of discussions with my husband when we started. My husband comes from the business industry, high tech, nothing about psychology, although he's married to me so many years. But he would be on those videos for again and again and again. I would wake up at night and see him on another video. And it took me a few weeks to say, Alon, cut it. It's not good for you. You know, obviously I said it from the beginning, but he wouldn't listen in the beginning. And then I think he realized that it's not good and it doesn't add anything. He already knew. He doesn't have to see now all the videos. And I think it's important for you to feel, you know, we've lost so much, so many things are out of our control now, especially the first responders and the people who were exposed down south. So let's bring back our control to what we can. That's a lot of resiliency in these difficult days. You worked at uh, Columbia University, and um, you know we've heard about the, um, the the strong anti-Israel. Some call it anti-Semitic uh, sentiment there. How do you deal with that as a professional, as an academic, but also as an Israeli? How has that impacted you and your work there? Impacted me a lot. I'll talk on a personal level and a professional level. I've been at Columbia for many, many years. Actually, th- since 2004, I go there every summer. I have a lot of friends and colleagues. We have collaborations. I'm about to go in March to meet them all in a conference, and I love them dearly. And most of them are amazing now. They're supportive. They've, you know, first, I think the evening of October 7th, I called some of them up, and they were the first to respond and help us, you know, to navigate What do we do now that we need protocols for trauma, depression, suicide prevention together? Because the mental health field has changed. So that's one side. The other, more challenging side, is that some of them either disappeared from my life and are not responding to my mails or have responded in a very critical way. But it was very difficult for me. And on a professional side, it's very, very challenging because for the first time in my life, I was ashamed to be part of Columbia University. And for the first time in my life, I'm afraid to go to a conference. You're, you're also an uh, ex- expert in child psychology. How uh, have you seen this impact children across Israel How has it impacted your own children, although they're a little bit older? And what are some of the ways that you advise parents to be with and talk with their children about what is going on? So I'll start from the end uh, of your question. I think we should talk to kids about everything all the time. So that's my general idea with kids. I've been talking to my kids from the minute they could talk about, uh, actually before I talked to them, <laughs> before they were verbal. Um, and I, you know, Holocaust days, Memorial days, I would explain to my kids when they were very young. And because I work with suicidality, they are kids who know how to talk about death and suicide. And when you talk about these difficult things and challenging things, I think you're able to help your kids talk about everything. So I'm very happy about that. My old, my son is 22 now, and he's definitely a guy who can you can talk to about everything, which makes me very proud. 
Um, so that's both on a personal level and a professional level. I think you have to mediate for the kids depending on their level of development and age, etc. And so, you know, you have to tell the truth. You have to answer questions. You don't have to overflow with too much information. But when they ask and kids ask, and I'm happy for them, say the truth. But also keep in mind that we want to reveal that we're resilient and we're optimistic. Hopefully it's authentic, right? You don't want to say something that it's not authentic. But as a very optimistic person, it's easy for me to be authentic about optimism. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, a lot of our job is, as parents is to show them that we're anxious, too, and that we're sad, too. And it's okay to, I think, to cry, and I think studies show, to cry in front of kids. And even to really cry and break down, it's all a matter of what do you do the next moment. So talking about my you know, personal trauma, when I lost my mom, and obviously they lost their grandma, which was very traumatic, they were with us, they saw me cry a lot. They saw me function much less than I do today. I was, you know, having a hard time waking up in the morning. I was having a hard time functioning as I used to. And I was able to say, guys, it's okay. Don't panic. I know it's difficult. It's difficult for me. It's difficult. I'll be okay. I know that. I just need the time. Let me cry. Don't, you know, just be with me. I'll be with you. We'll be together in this. And I think they, you know, they had to, an opportunity to see that it's okay to break and come back to yourself again. I think that's been my journey, my journey as a parent also. And in the first few years, and definitely with my eldest son, there was this idea that, you know, I had to show that everything was okay all the time. Um, and of course, like you said, that wasn't my internal reality. Um for, for, for reasons of, you know, genetic reasons and, and historical reasons. And um, it wasn't my reality all the time. And so what I had to do was both build my resilience so that, like you, I could become more optimistic and I could become more resilient. And so he could see the repair, but also be more honest about what I was feeling. So my kids are, are young. They're, they're eight and my daughter just turned six and nine months. I will say things like you, you know, you mentioned that are age appropriate and I will say things that they can understand. I'm very tired. I didn't sleep well last night or I'm kind of cranky because I'm, I haven't eaten. Or I would say, you know what, give me five minutes and I'll be, you know, I'll come back and I'll probably have a bit more patience or I need to step out. You know, I need to step out. I'll tell my husband, Barack, I need 10 minutes. This is just too much for me. I'm stepping out, but I'm coming back. So it's, it's not that easy to do when, like you said, you're not being authentic. If you're really feeling like the world is falling apart, it's extremely hard to convey to your children that, you know, it's okay to break down, but I'll, I'll be back. Um, so that's why I want to come back to that idea of resilience and uh, for parents to know how important and beautiful it is for them to work on their own self-care so that they can build that resilience so that when they talk to their children and they mediate, they can show where there are some weaknesses, but they can also show where the repair is happening. And if you feel that you can't as a parent, which is totally fine, just seek therapy. I think one of the things that I want to encourage parents is that, you know, what we're talking I, it sounds like for both of us is relatively, not easy, but doable. 
there's some parents that it's not doable. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where put your, you know, we put the masks on on flights, emergencies before we put on our kids. Seek therapy, make it possible and doable for you, although it won't be easy, and then practice with your kids. One of the things that I see a lot is people trying to decrease the anxiety levels. And I'm not sure that should be the focus of people who now feel very distressed and anxious. I think feeling distressed and anxious now and sad is totally normal. So to kind of normalize what people feel, but at the same time, also make sure that you have the skills. So I think after hearing us, maybe each and every one of our listeners can ask him or herself Which of the skills do I need to practice more? Acceptance of negative skills, emotion regulation, problem solving, communication. You know, we've touched just kind of on a general level, but these are actual skills that people should ask themselves, do I have those enough or is this an opportunity to practice? So normalizing the feelings, but at the same time, going out and seeking support to increase your resiliency muscles. What are you going to do today to make your day meaningful, easier, more resilient? So I'm so happy that you're asking because every single day I have my schedule, which obviously in the mornings and working hours is very hectic and busy. But every single day I do something for my resiliency. So tonight I have a date with my younger daughter and husband for a yoga together. So we don't do anything fancy. We open up our TV and we put an instructor, which I don't know personally, but I feel like I know from the States, and we do yoga together. And that's something that all day long I will think about, that tonight at 8.30 we'll yoga together. That's so beautiful. And uh, uh, I was just thinking, uh, you know, what am I going to do? Because you had such a great answer. And I think for me it's just going to be very simple. You know, my nine-month-old is um is absolutely divine obviously the nine months old are and and fluffy and pudgy and those folds and I'm just gonna go and uh, hug him and sniff him and kiss him and try to be really present and mindful as I do it and feel all those you know feel good hormones that are trickling through my body so it's not going to be as long an experience as you it doesn't have to be nor long or fancy or expensive it's all even just being thankful about one thing you know which isn't it's less than a second and that minute is a seed right so that minute is the seed that we plant for for the next day and days Thank you so much, Anat. I so appreciate you taking the time out of your packed schedule as the dean of the school and with all the initiatives you're involved with and as a mom. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This has been Raw. To listen to more of our episodes, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. I'm Anu Glory. Goodbye.